Um, it's good to be all with you here this Sabbath. Happy Sabbath, everyone. It's nice to see your smiling faces from this angle. Um, just to report, because it's always good to share personal things about God's, how, how God has blessed us. Um, my mom, in the last couple of months, had heart surgery up in Toronto. And it was a three-hour surgery, and she got a, her valves kind of replaced. And in the middle of the surgery, they kind of sewed her up. It was looking good. And then her heart stopped. And so they opened her up. The doctor put his hands on her heart and literally you know, started to make it beat back to life. And today, my mom is in church sitting here, and she's alive and well. So I'm, I'm very, very happy to have more time with my mom, and she's healing and getting better. So praise God for medicine, and praise God for your prayers. Thank you. It went a long way, so we very much appreciated. Uh, today... I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open them with me to the book of Mark, chapter 9. You're going to need them today because we're reading the whole story, and it's not a short one. In Mark, chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 14, we'll be reading from the New King James Version in Mark, chapter 9. And you have your pew Bibles. Uh, they're NIV. This is the New King James Version, but it's better to read it than not. Uh, and the Bible says in Mark, chapter 9... Beginning in verse 14, I'll give you a little more time for the rustling to stop. In Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, the Bible says, And when he, that's Jesus, came down, came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Verse 15, immediately when they saw Jesus, all the people were greatly amazed. And running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. But they could not. Verse 19, Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the boy or the demon saw Jesus, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked that unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead. 
So the many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when Jesus had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. This morning, or this afternoon, I want to talk to you on the topic entitled Battling Our Demons. Battling Our Demons. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, we have read your word, and now, Lord, we ask for a special outpouring of your spirit on the preaching of your word, that our hearts and minds would be lifted to Jesus. And today, Lord, no matter what struggle we came here with, we would leave with the victory and the power that only comes from the grace of God. This is what I ask, and this is what I beg you to do. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So I'm not sure if you noticed that Halloween has come and gone, and uh, I'm going to be open with you. There are a few things about Halloween that I actually really, really like. I like that on Halloween, I see families out walking together in nature. I think that is a good thing for families to do. I like that there's candy. Who here does not like candy? And I like about Halloween that I get to see tons of little kids wearing their cute, adorable costumes. You got to recognize how adorable and beautiful that is. If you don't like that, maybe then you're the monster. <laughs> but there is one thing I do not like about Halloween, and that is that it can have the tendency to trivialize spiritual realities in our life. That when we see ghosts and ghouls, we think this is just the imagination of a small child. But the Bible lets us know that spiritual warfare is very real. That there is a great controversy between Christ and Satan every single day. That every single moment there is the hosts of heaven lined up against the hosts of hell in a mighty battle, not for land, not for possessions, not for seats in the House of Representatives or seats in the Senate, but for the seats in every soul of humans who come and live in this world today. There is a battle raging for the souls of humanity, whether you will be saved for eternity or lost forever. And so, yeah, I like the candy. I like the costumes. I like the families walking together. But I do not like how it trivializes the spiritual warfare that we are in. For the Bible does tell us in Revelation chapter 12 that that dragon, that serpent of old called the devil, he was cast to the earth and his angels, who we call demons, were cast to the earth with him. And the Bible continues to say in Revelation that the dragon knows that his time is short. So woe to us. And the Bible is clear in Revelation that the dragon, that devil, he's angry with the church. He's angry with them. He meant to, and he's gone to make war with the rest of the, her offspring. That's the remnant church. That are people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. 
There is a spiritual battle taking place that every single day as we step out of our door, we have to be aware that the devil goes about like a roaring lion, seeking to whom he will devour. And so we do not wrestle just merely against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against a host of heavenly wickedness in the heavenly places. We have to be reminded that there is a thief and his purpose, according to scripture, in your life is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And our passage this morning, it reminds us that as a Christian church, we have a responsibility in this spiritual battle. And our passage actually gives us a reminder but also a rebuke for the modern Christian church. For the Bible says that Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he sees the disciples with a great multitude, or we could call it a great crowd. And if I were looking at this from a merely church perspective, I would say that this was a successful church event. You have the disciples of Jesus and you have a large crowd, check. You look at the passage and it continues. The disciples of Jesus are with, with a large crowd and the, and the disciples are having a deep, enriching theological conversation with the religious elites of their day, which means there is a academic and rigorous theological discussion that enhances the mind and stretches the imagination and challenges the beliefs. And as a Christian pastor, I would say, well, there's a large crowd. Check. There's great religious conversation taking place and minds are being stretched and they're learning. Check. And the Bible continues to say in verse 15 that Jesus was there and the Bible says that the crowd saw him and they were greatly amazed. In the Greek, this word means excited with a kind of reverence. And so from my Christian perspective as a church pastor, I'd say this is a successful church event. There's a large crowd, check. There's great religious conversation, check. There is, as we can see here, a feeling of amazement of the reverence of God that God is in the midst. But what we look at as a success, Jesus deems an ultimate failure. For he says to this crowd of people with the disciples, he says, how long will I bear with you, O faithless generation? How long can I put up with you? Why is Jesus upset? It's a success. There are people. There's theology. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of good things happening. The problem is, is that there was a young boy in the crowd with a demon, and he could not get freedom from that demon. He came as he was, but he was about to leave just as he was. And dear church, you know what I love about the church is that it's the only institution on the planet that is for everybody. And the Bible says, Jesus lets us know that you can come as you are. That means whether you're black or you're white, you're welcome. If you're a mixed like me, you're welcome. If you're rich or you're poor, you're welcome. If you're heterosexual or if you're homosexual, you're welcome. If you're cisgender, or as they call it, transgender, you're welcome. 
The church is the only institution on the earth that welcomes everyone. Come as you are. But the call of the gospel is not simply just to come as you are, but it's to come as you are and to leave changed and transformed and renewed in the power of Jesus. And some of us here today have become so used to coming as we are to church and leaving as we are that we come with our addictions and we leave with our addictions. We come with our pride and we leave with our pride. We come with our lust and we leave with our lust. We're taking the appetizers of our Christian faith when Jesus has the full course prepared for us. Because Jesus cares about us. And our passage this morning introduces us to a very uncomfortable truth that whether or not we foam at the mouth or our body is seized to be thrown into the fire, the truth of our passage this morning tells us that we each wrestle and battle our own demons. Oh, you might say to me, Pastor, I don't wrestle with any demons. I brush my teeth, my hair is done, I got a beautiful suit on this morning. I'm not demon-possessed. I have no battle with demons. If you think that, dear saint, let me remind you that the first demon Jesus ever cast out didn't take place in Halloween. He didn't cast him out at a movie theater. But the first demon Jesus ever encountered took place in a synagogue on the Sabbath. That on church, on Sabbath, a well-dressed man came into the sanctuary. He sat down. He listened to the whole a gamut of Jesus' teaching, and then by the very end of it, then the demon reared its ugly head. See, demon possession isn't just what we've made it to believe based off of our culture, but each and every one of us are engaged with a spiritual battle between the enemies of Satan. Now listen, before you think that is just for people who are not followers of God, it's not true. Every single person has our battle with demons. Think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's there and he's praying to God three times, you remember, and he says to the Lord, please remove this thorn from my flesh. You remember that? Three times I prayed to the Lord to remove the thorn from my flesh. And we as Seventh-day Adventists know because of the inspiration of Ellen White, we've come to the belief that the thorn in Paul's flesh was his eyesight. But that's not what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Even though it is his eyesight, we believe that. But Paul says, it is a messenger of Satan to torment me. So which one is it? Is it his eyesight or is it a messenger of Satan? And think of this passage here in Mark chapter 9. This boy comes to Jesus and he's possessed by a demon, the Bible says. But when you read the same story in Matthew chapter 17, the Bible says that the boy has a secular problem. He has epilepsy. So which one is it? Is it epilepsy or is it demon possession? Is it his eyesight or is it tormenting spirit? Well, the best way I can answer that question is through an illustration. Um, I learned in first service that my tie doesn't always look the same color from every distance. But I want you to imagine with me, if you can't see it, that the tie here is striped with two colors. I know someone told me, it looks pink. It looks pink. It's not pink. I, wouldn't, I would wear pink. That's okay. I, I would wear pink. But my question to you with the striped tie is, is this tie red 
Who here sees red in the tie? Cool. Yeah, the tie is red. I couldn't argue with you that the tie is not red. There are red stripes going through the tie. But also, the other color is white. Any of you see the white color? Okay, you see it up close. I think back, it's a little harder to see. And I could vehemently argue with you that the tie is red. And someone here could vehemently argue that the tie is white. But we'd be missing the point, wouldn't we? That the tie is neither just red nor just white. It's red and white. It's both. And often when we look at these battles in scripture between is this a secular physical problem or is this a spiritual or supernatural problem, the answer to the question is both. It is both a physical problem and a secular problem and a spiritual problem and a supernatural problem. The problem is we wrestle with our illnesses. We wrestle with our demons. We wrestle with our struggles merely from one perspective rather than the other. When there is a holistic problem, it's a holistic problem, but we come at it with partial solutions. So if you're here today and you're one of the many people who struggle with mental health, as I know I have struggled with mental health, you're gonna be tempted if you're more secular-minded like myself to go to a psychiatrist, to talk to a psychologist, to get a mental health professional on your side and listen very carefully. Please, dear God, listen to this. You should. There is a reason we have these professionals in society. They can help you. They can give medication. And if prescribed, it's worth a chance. It's worth a shot. But the problem with some of us who are secularly minded is that when we come to the issue of mental health, we solve it just from a secular perspective and we forget and we forego that there is power that comes from prayer that there is power that comes from reading of the word of God, that there is power that comes from fasting, that spiritual power can be gained by denying the flesh and inviting the spirit of God in our life. But at the same time, those of you or me who are more spiritually minded, when we wrestle with our demons, when we struggle with addiction, when we struggle with disease, we think, okay, this is merely and only a spiritual problem. So we pray, and you should pray, and you read your Bible, and you should read your Bible, and you fast, and we should fast. But we're going at a holistic problem with a partial solution, and we ignore the doctors. We don't go to the mental health professionals. We talk to our pastor, who I can tell you is ill-equipped to deal with issues like that. And we are doing the same thing. We're trying to deal with a holistic problem with partial solutions. But I love our passage this morning because the Bible shows us that as we struggle with our demons, whether we are aware of them and can name them ourselves, we do not have to struggle alone. For the Bible tells us that this young boy from really his childhood had been struggling with a demon. And he comes to Jesus, not on his own accord, but from the help of his father. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says he is so demon-possessed, he's not able to utter the help that he needs. And if this isn't a picture in Scripture about the power of intercessory prayer, then I don't know what is. Because there are certain people in your life who you love, who you know, who, who need the Spirit of God in their life, and they don't even know that they need it. 
but you do. And you can pray for them and you can love them and you can minister to them and you can ask the spirit of God to intercede on your behalf for them. I hope you're not still living your Christianity in isolation. I hope you're still not doing this thing on your own, but you've found some friends who will pray with you, that you've joined a Sabbath school group that will make a difference in your life, that you, that you have a connect group that you can come to when your job is treating you like trash and you can come to the people in your group and say, I need prayer, I need help because this battle is too big for me by myself. We need to pray for one another. We need to be there for one another. But I love this passage because it continues and it strikes me as a father of how it continues. Because how was it that that demon-possessed boy makes his way to Jesus? Does he make his way to Jesus through his own action? Not for a second. But it is the father who brings his son to Jesus. And as a parent myself, I am reminded that the main discipler of every child is not the teacher at the school. It's not the pastor from the pulpit or even the youth pastor in the small group. But the main discipler of every single child is the parent. It's the father. It's the mother. And I can't help but notice that over the last decade or so, some of us have become too accustomed with subcontracting our spiritual responsibility onto someone else. That if we write the check for the Christian school, we've done our job at discipleship. That if we've dropped our kids off at the Bible study, then they are now being spiritually discipled in the way that they are. But dear friends, I need to let you know that when the time comes for heavens to be open and Jesus to come, he's going to look at every father, every mother, every grandparent, and he's going to say, what have you done with my child? Have you brought them to Jesus? Or have you let that be the responsibility of others that belong to you? I can't help but notice over the last 10 years, the trend of the church changing. It used to be that parents dragged their children to church. It used to be that. But now you'll notice on a Sabbath when the kids from the school are playing or performing, the church is packed, right? But when the kids are not playing, then the church is just regular full. I notice in a school of 400 in which 200 are members of this church, they're all in the Sabbath school rooms, but I don't hear them in the sanctuary. And it's reminded me of the fact that I think our responsibility on spiritual discipleship has changed. Because instead of the parent bringing their children to church, it is the child bringing their parent to church. And I'm gonna tell you very clearly and very boldly, because I've been doing this for a while, that if you want your kid to be in the kingdom, the person who they're gonna look up the most to is you, dear father. It's you, dear mother. Because when the time comes for them to graduate high school, they're gonna look at you and they're gonna say, is my mom and dad still in this thing or are they just here for me? And they see that, they look at that. And there's a reminder in our passage this morning that God will hold us accountable for how we treat not just our children, but his children. And I don't know where you are, but I'm here from God to tell you, it's time to start discipling our children again. 
Frankly, the numbers and the ratios we have, even at the school and the church, are impossible for us as committed disciples of Jesus to do the job of the parent. And it's in the passage here. It's in the passage. The father, he first brings the child to the disciples, right? But the disciples aren't able to do it. It's the father who has to bring the child to Jesus. Not just the church, not just the school, but to Jesus. I was talking to a parent whose child had been going through uh, baptismal lessons with me, and uh, we had gone to the point in our study where I make the appeal. So after what you've learned, are you ready to commit your life to Jesus and to be baptized? And they say yes, and it's like a joyful moment. But I never just keep it that way. I always try to remind the parents to make the same appeal. Because your appeal, dear parent, to your son and your daughter's heart goes much further than any pastor. Even if they sass you, even if they give you lip, they care about your opinion much more than anybody else's. And so, dear parent, take the time to appeal to your children's heart for Jesus. Sit them down in an atmosphere that they, you have time to listen to their heart to listen to their woes, and then give the Spirit of God the opportunity to make that appeal directly to your child's heart. Have you thought about following Jesus? Have you thought about giving your life to him in baptism? I'm telling you, it will be the greatest joyful experience that you've ever had. That parent who I was talking to just this week, she did that with her children. She asked them, do you want to be baptized? Do you want to give your heart to Jesus? And they said yes. And her heart was happy and her face was smiling because she had experienced the greatest joy of a parent to lead our children to Jesus. But you guys know me. You guys see my children. I know how hard it is to lead our children to Jesus and to wrestle with this thing we call spiritual warfare. The first person to tell you who their daddy's demons are would be my sons. If you spent some time with my kids, they would tell you very quickly, oh yeah, dad, you know, you mess with him wrong, he'll become angry daddy. Uh, you spend enough time with my wife and you, and you gain her trust, she'll be able to tell you, uh, I wrestle with my own demons. And I know what it's, how hard it is to try to disciple children who are little and who are big. Uh, it's sometimes easier to turn on YouTube than it is to go to worship. Sometimes it's easier to play a game outside than it is to sit down and pray. But the appeal from God's word for us today is that we fight a spiritual battle and our children and us, we need all the help we can get. So do not give up in the discipleship of your children. I love this story because it reminds me of my own human weakness, of my own battle with my own demons. But I'm thankful this morning that we truly do not wrestle with the demons on our own. For when we are weak, Jesus is strong. The Bible says that Jesus came down from that Mount of Transfiguration and he saw the disciples in their discouragement without the power to cast out the demon. And it was a reminder to them that when they are weak, Jesus is strong. Jesus continued and he talked to that father that day. He had a dialogue with him and he recognized that that father had a lack of faith. 
But even when our faith is weak, Jesus' faith in us is strong. And he looked that demon in the eyes. He looked him square in the face. And he said, dumb and mute demon, get out of him and never come again. For even though we are powerless in our sin and in our struggle against the forces of Satan, Jesus is so strong that when we are weak, when we are weak he still is strong. And so, dear saint, dear member of God, dear fellow army man in the, in the kingdom of Jesus, do not give up fighting. Do not give up the struggle. Do not give up the battle because the battle is not ours, but the battle belongs to the Lord. And soon and very soon, he'll come in the clouds of glory, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And he will give us ultimate freedom from the demons in our lives. But until then, don't give up. There is freedom today. There is victory today. There is revival today by the blood of Jesus. Grab hold of Jesus. There is power. There is change. There is victory. When we place our small mustard seed of faith into the mighty faith of our God. God bless you.